Well, welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. After the holidays, we've been away, but we're delighted to be back and we're delighted to welcome you, um, our viewers from across the world. We broadcast in lots of different ways, but primarily right now live. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined uh, this week by two very special guests uh, to be talking about a very important and extremely uh, newsworthy and vital issue. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Mustafa Baghouti. He'll be familiar to many of you. Um, Mustafa is a physician. He's a member of the Palestinian Legislative Council. Uh, he's a former Palestinian uh, minister, and he's president of the Palestinian Medical Relief Society, and he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010. Um, Mustafa, I think uh, we'll come to you in, in a minute, but I, but I think you're also currently volunteering uh, in, in doing health work uh, amongst uh, uh, the hospitals and clinics. Uh, and I also hear that you're recovering from COVID-19 yourself. So we wish you speedy recovery, uh, but it makes our issue tonight ever more urgent. Um, Dr. Yara Asi, who's been a regular uh, at Palestine Deep Dive, welcome back to you. Um, Yara is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Central Florida, a Fulbright U.S. scholar for 2020 and 2021, and an Al-Shabaka policy member. And uh, Al-Shabaka, of course, is the very um, important Palestinian think tank. Uh, just before we uh, began this evening, uh, because we are going to be talking about the issue of COVID-19, the fact that... Uh, uh, in the Western media, there's a lot of discussion about uh, countries and how they're rolling out the vaccination program. And Israel is being held up as a paragon. Israel is being held up as a paragon because uh, I think the figure is something like uh, 22 uh, out of 100,000. It's uh, well ahead of most other countries. But of course, what the media isn't reporting is that uh, Palestinians in the occupied territories are not receiving vaccinations. And this is the issue that we really want to get to grips with tonight. It's very important. In fact, um, uh, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti had a very important piece in the New York Times today. Um, and we have put that out on Palestine Deep Dive. We're going to share it with you. Uh, but it's a very timely piece. Um, and uh, it's an issue we really think that we need to get a grip on because we're only actually getting a partial view of what is happening. Um, and uh, it's quite clear that uh, as an occupying power, uh, Israel has very special responsibilities to the millions of Palestinians that are currently living under occupation. Um, and, and I did just speak to um, a British member of parliament as well before we came on air. Uh, he's a very uh, strong supporter of the Palestinian cause. Uh, Graham Morris, he's the Labour MP for Easington, he tells me that there's a, a letter being prepared, I think it's an all-party letter, um, that, demanding that the Israeli government uh, takes the necessary action to provide vaccinations for Palestinians as well. And this letter is going to be sent to the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab here in the United Kingdom, and hopefully the British government will uh, find its voice and pr provide some leadership on this in persuading one of its closest allies, Israel, to do the right things. Dr. Barghouti, sorry for that rather long drawn out um, introduction, but I wanted to come to you first, if I may. In the, in the Western media, here in Britain, Yara can tell us what's happening in the United States, of course, uh, shocking statistics in, in both countries. Britain today recorded its highest death toll, one and a half thousand since this panic pandemic started. It's a shocking situation in, in this country. Uh, that does mean in our media, there's very little reflection and reporting from um, the rest of the world, unfortunately, unless these things directly impact Britain. This is the parochialism, unfortunately, also bred by the pandemic. So I, I just wondered if I begin by asking you for a kind of general overview of the situation in the Middle East. How widespread is COVID-19? Uh, are you being affected by any of the new variants? Um, and also, if you could just give us some idea uh, from your experience on your rounds, uh, what it's like uh, dealing 
uh, with patients in this situation? Thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you for inviting me to uh, to this session, and uh, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, let me start first by general comment about the world. I think the COVID-19 has shown the flaws of the international system. Uh, it has shown how uh, how governments, business people, have ignored really the real needs of the people, the humanity. And in my opinion, there had there been more investment in healthcare, more investment in technology that deals with research, more investment in education, we would not have been in this terrible situation. Probably vaccines would have been developed much faster. The disease would have been diagnosed much earlier. And uh, we would have avoided so many deaths and so many problems. The fact that in the third wave today, after more than 10 months, uh, countries like Britain or United States or other countries, and Israel, by the way, Israel is not doing that well. I mean, the fact that they had a lot of money to buy the vaccines because others does not mean they are doing well. Today, they had 9,500 cases. So all the system, the whole system is failing and has failed the people. They failed it when they did not diagnose it properly in the beginning. They failed it because they were late in producing the vaccines. And they are failing now because there is no system of vaccination. And uh, the worst thing is that the rich countries can get the vaccines and the poor and middle-income middle countries cannot. Uh, that is, in my opinion, a global problem, uh, reflecting a crisis in the global economic system and requires really a whole international huge movement for social justice to fix these problems. I mean, I don't want to talk about what Trump did in the United States, it's obvious to everybody, but look at the numbers of deaths in the United States, the most advanced countries, supposedly. Anyhow, talking about Palestine, we went through stages. In the first stage in March, we had a few cases, mainly because of contact with tourists who came to the country. Then gradually we started to get cases through Israel. In the beginning, we controlled the matter very well the first three months. We had only tens of cases. And we were worried about the communication with Israel, which was having higher, higher cases. And we tried to convince them to control the borders and the crossing and to provide protection and, and tests to the workers who go to work in Israel, but they did not pay any attention. There was a moment even when they found a worker with fever, they would throw him away at the checkpoint without even informing the Palestinians. So start, gradually we started to get very high rate of infection. Today, the rate of infection, meaning the number of positive cases versus tests is 30% approximately in the West Bank and Gaza. It's about 7.4% in Israel. That is very high. And uh, uh, the problem in countries and places like Gaza, which struggled against the disease, but eventually it went in. Uh, Gaza is uh, 2.1 million people. 70% of them live in refugee camps. You talk about 10 people living in two rooms, usually. Can't isolate people. The, the disease now is community is, is, a, is a community infection, spreading at the community level, both in the West Bank and Gaza. And Gaza is besieged by Israel, as you know. Gaza is besieged by Israel by land, by air, by airspace, by, by, by sea. And Israel made sure to destroy much of the electricity supply. So people in Gaza have electricity only for 10, day, 10 hours a day. Water is 95% of the water is polluted or salted, not good for human use. And uh, Israel restricts the supplies of medications, supplies of equipment, instruments, and prevents the people. I may Bhutti, just come in there. I mean, because I, I was going to ask you about the situation in different parts of the occupied territories, and I, I as particularly, I suppose, um, the situation in Gaza, because uh, 
the Israeli government say, well, look, Gaza is effectively self-governing, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's running its own affairs. But of course, we all know that um, Israel controls the, uh, the, the borders very effectively and even the maritime borders too. So, you know, what is the situation? Have you been able to see what for your, on, at first hand what the situation is in Gaza? No, because I cannot go to Gaza. They don't allow me. I'm forbidden from going to Israel. I'm forbidden from going to Jerusalem. I'm forbidden, forbidden from going to Gaza. And since uh, more than three years, I cannot get there. Uh, I usually went through Egypt when I wanted to, especially when wars happen in Gaza. Uh, but now they are restricting our movement. And the worst thing is that you talk about cancer patients or very severely sick patients who cannot travel out of Gaza. It's a big present. It's an open big present controlled by Israel. But let me talk about COVID issue here. Israel has just announced that they had bought 14 million uh, vaccines for their uh, for people who carry Israeli citizenship or ID. Uh, they totally ignored the Palestinians. Uh, the situation is a situation of racist behavior. It didn't happen even in the time of apartheid in South Africa. In the West Bank, imagine, 750,000 illegal settlers are receiving the vaccines now. 3.1 million Palestinians are receiving nothing, who live in the same area. Mm. Gaza is getting nothing. More than that, the Interior Minister of Israel has ordered the vaccination of Israeli guards and Israeli uh, who, 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 who guard the prisons, but insisted not to vaccinate the 5,000 Palestinian prisoners, political prisoners, men and women. Because of that, now we already have a very high spread of the disease inside the prisons, already more than 200 cases. Uh, a number of them are in critical condition. So in my opinion, what is happening is a racist behavior, something like uh, an apartheid practice. And that's why people call it medical apartheid. Uh, Israel is occupying power. I'm going to stop you there because actually your, your many of the questions I'm going to be asking are touching on all of these issues and there's there is there's almost so much information for people to take in um you, you know to, to have it all at once is is is, is shocking but we I think we have to try and drill it down um if we can um, I've just actually had a message from that uh, member of parliament I was talking, uh, talking to you about, Graham Morris. Uh, the demand in this letter to the British Foreign Secretary is for equitable access to coronavirus vaccines and treatment for all Palestinians, regardless of whether they're living in uh, Israel, 1967 borders, or the occupied uh, territories. Um, and, and one of the issues... I, I know a lot of our, the people who are tuning in are interested to know about are the kind of the legal obligations on on the Israeli government, and also, I mean, both of you will be able to tell us uh, too about some of the reasons, some of the excuses that have been offered by the Israeli government for not actually doing this. But Yara, if I if I may come to you, I mean, um, you're based in the United States. Uh, there's a horrendous situation. Um, there, uh, very possibly one of the worst in the world. Um, pu public health seems to vary from state to state. Uh, you know, the federal government has been uh, sharply criticised for for its uh, failures on ac across a whole series of fronts. So, when all of that is happening in the United States, plus a presidential election, plus an insurrection, plus uh, an inauguration, apart from when. Um, Dr. Barghouti's article appears in the New York Times. Is there any knowledge in the United States as to what is happening in Israel and Palestine? Um, well, first, thank you for having me, Mark, um, on to talk about what I think is a really important issue. You know, I have been really surprised at how in the news this specific issue of uh, Israeli, uh, you know, obligation for providing vaccines to Palestinians has been. You know, I think after years, kind of announcements about settlements or skirmishes, as they're widely called, they just kind of tend to blend into the background because people are so used to hearing about, you know, conflict in the Middle East, right? But I think with everyone in the world, everyone watching, all of us here in every country, 
all being in the same situation, all experiencing the same pandemic, we're all waiting for a vaccine. I think it has made it really visceral to people that there might be a population that for entirely man-made political reasons um, are not able to get the same vaccine. Um, unfortunately, the problem is that there are a lot of misconceptions in Western media more broadly about what the situation in the Middle East actually is. It's often framed as one state, Israel, and another state, Palestine, that are warring over some land, um, but otherwise, they're two states that have their own responsibilities. Um, and in fact, and I know we'll get more into this, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, the Palestinian Authority is not autonomous. As we'll talk about, they control almost no factors of Palestinian life, even in the areas where they seemingly have control. Um, and you know, we can get into the legal parts later if you like. But so when when we do hear about this issue, which we are, often the rebuttals are misinformed, um, either because of you know a lack of understanding of history or bad faith attempts to paint this as an issue you know, that is that is very different in reality than it is on paper. Well, thanks, Yara. I mean, we are getting we're asking people to send in their questions. Um, we've heard from um, Chet Johnston. He says, good evening from Northampton, UK. Uh, Wally Yazbak from he says hello from Atlanta and Blue Georgia. You Americans, Yara knows what we're talking about there, Blue Georgia. Um, there is a question here, um, and I think this this would go to uh, actually it's a point. This is from Wally to Dr. Barguti. He says, please do connect if you haven't with the Mariam Foundation for fighting cancer based in Nazareth. They help all Palestinian cancer patients. I think it was when you were referring to the issue of of um, of cancer patients, because of course, you know, as you know, as both of you will know, um, you know, COVID has meant wherever it has struck that uh, stretched uh, health services have actually had to scale back on other treatments um, that they offer and cancer patients being just one of them. But Yara, before I go back to Dr. Baguti, I wanted to ask you another question because I, I've, I've seen this uh, a number of times now when Israel has been criticized. People will say, uh, well, hold on a minute, under the Oslo Accords, um, this function uh, is really a function for the Palestinian authority for the Palestine Authority. It should be sourcing uh, vaccines. It is indeed having to do that, as we understand. But can, can you explain um, whether that is the case or whether it's not, and what really is the case in international law? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I really welcome this opportunity to clear this up. Um, and for any skeptics that may be watching, you know, all the documents that I'm referencing are fully available online. Uh, so feel free to, to read them after this. So um, first, you know, without getting into the legalese of the Geneva Conventions, I just want to point to Article 55, which uh, there is an entire section of the Geneva Conventions, the responsibility of the occupying power and the occupied territories. Now, let's not forget that almost every state and every international entity, including the United Nations Security Council, General Assembly, um, the ICJ, uh, they all maintain that Israel is the occupying power. Uh, so let's get that clear off the bat. Um, so Article 55 of Geneva claims that the occupying power has the duty to ensure food and medical supplies, that's one. And then we have Article 56, which is that the occupying power has a duty to ensure and maintain public health and hygiene um, with cooperation of local authorities. So. Let that, let's set the foundation there. Importantly, there's Article 47, which says that no agreement between the authorities of the occupying power and the occupied territory supersedes the protections of Geneva. So that's strike one against bringing up Oslo in this. The Oslo Accords does not displace Israel's responsibility um, from the Geneva Conventions. And Article 60 of Geneva says that humanitarian relief, which we have seen uh, during COVID towards Gaza and the West Bank, does not relieve the occupying power of these duties either. Um, so, so let's go, you know, what, what I'm hearing is about Article 17 of Oslo Annex 3. And this does, it's true, say that the Palestinian Authority has responsibilities for vaccines. 
Um, however, I, I ask your viewers, you know, what about the rest of Oslo? You know, I did not hear these same critics who are really suddenly invested in Palestinian autonomy complaining about lack of safe passage between Gaza and the West Bank, which was guaranteed through Oslo, or really about any of the other rights related to electricity, land use, the judicial system, the education system, the health system, the borders, and so on. Um, they were never passed to the Palestinian Authority. Um, further, even if we were to assert that Oslo is relevant here, the PA only exercises a some semblance of control in Area A, which is less than half of the West Bank, and these parts of the West Bank are barely connected to each other. Um, you know, I, I challenge anyone to go to the West Bank, and not just a bus tour from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, but drive through the West Bank and tell me that this is a sovereign state. You can't cross a border into the West Bank without interacting with Israeli soldiers. Um, you can't even enter Gaza, as Dr. Barghouti said. Um, this is a state that is expected to pull off a vaccination distribution program that is challenging you know, the world's most rich and powerful countries. I just don't find this an argument in good faith. That's very interesting, Yara. And actually, just before I, I go to uh, Dr. Barghouti again, there's a, there's a message for you. Good evening to you, Dr. Yara, from Nablus, your hometown. <laughs> And that's from Yazan Akel. Um, uh, Dr. Barghouti, I mean, there's a, we heard from Yara there about um, the Geneva Conventions and about international law. It seems pretty clear to most people, and it seems pretty clear to the United Nations and to the international community. And it would appear that increasingly member states are going to be reminding Israel of its responsibilities. But there's another question that anybody who, who just looks at this situation, a sort of common sense question, which is, you know, if you really wanted to protect your population, why? And we were trying to get herd immunity by inoculating the vast majority. Why wouldn't you be inoculating Palestinians who are coming to work in Israel proper? Why wouldn't you be, as you just mentioned, inoculate vaccinating prisoners? Um, why would you not be doing this out of just self-preservation? Okay, <clears throat> before I answer your question, I just want to add a few points to what Yara said. Uh, <clears throat> there is a legal obligation, very clear, in Geneva Convention of Israel to provide the vaccines and protection to people who are occupied by Israel. West Bank and Gaza are occupied by Israel, still. So this is very clear. When it comes to Oslo Agreement, even Oslo Agreement stipulates very clearly, in the case of pandemics, it's not the responsibility of the Palestinian Authority alone. It's the joint responsibility. And that is where Israel is also stuck legally, even with the issue of Oslo. But third and very important point, the Palestinian Authority does not exist in more than 338% of the West Bank. Fragmented territory, as one mentioned. 224 small islands separated from each other by Israeli legal settlements, the wall, etc. 62% of the West Bank is off limit to the Palestinian Authority. When we, the non-governmental organization, tried to build clinics in Area C, Israel closed them down. When we started a campaign to prevent COVID-19, they arrested our volunteers in Jerusalem. So we are talking here about Israel obstructing the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian organizations and international organizations from working in 62% of the occupied West Bank. And they are doing nothing for them now with the issue of the vaccine. So this is very clear. Even European projects that were built there were destroyed by Israel. Now, uh, the, the, the very important point here is, uh, uh, is the, the fact that even when world health, now one of the major problems we face is the possibility of the collapse of the health system. 200 doctors and nurses are already infected, including myself. And the WHO, World Health Organization, asked Israel for just thousands of vaccines to vaccinate those health workers on the front line and Israel refused. This is another fact. So your question to me, why Israel is doing that? As you said, Israel will not achieve herd immunity 
5.3 million Palestinians are not vaccinated. Actually, their policy is counterproductive to Israel itself. But why are they doing that? Because those who make decisions are politicians who are violating the basic rules of medical practice and medical morality and integrity. And all they think about, we are very happy as Israelis because we are vaccinated and protected and let the disease spread among these Palestinians. This is the actual horrible criminal, criminal thinking of these politicians. It reflects not only an approach of racism and apartheid, it's more than that. It's as if they are dreaming of ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Mm. That's mm. why they are doing this that is even counterproductive in the long run to the Israelis themselves. Well, Dr. <laughs> I think in the past day, uh, the um, the executive uh, director of Bet Salem, which is Israel's most prominent human rights organization, people watching this will know that. Uh, but the, the, this uh, organization has actually uh, its executive director Hage El Ad wrote uh, one of the key points in our analysis is that Israel and the Palestinian territories, in a single geopolitical area is ruled by one government effectively. Um, that's not democracy plus occupation. This is apartheid between the river and the sea. Uh, and I think what's very interesting from what you've both been saying uh, is that um, it's almost goes, it almost goes beyond a, a degree of apartheid. Uh, if it is the case, as you're saying, that um, clinics have been demolished and actually there is a mindset amongst some political leaders that actually it serves their purpose for a disease to spread. It's a very serious claim to be made. And it's a claim that I would assume that these politicians will be obliged to have to respond to because of their acts. And one of the, uh, one of our, and by the way, please do continue to send in your questions to our guest today, but Stephen Watters, um, in in the uk has uh, has has has, has uh, he he says in in july um israeli authorities demolished a palestinian drive through coronavirus testing center in hebron um i mean both of you have did you hear about this case is that true of course and also they did it in Selwan, near jerusalem in jerusalem and uh, they are doing it every day in area c the bedouin communities uh, uh, continuously are attacked, their houses are demolished, clinics that were built with the help of European Union were destroyed, schools were destroyed. You are talking about a process of ethnic cleansing, very clear. Yeah, and Mark, I just want to add, I would uh, recommend to the viewers, I wrote uh, prior to the vaccine de debate, I guess you could say, about how Israel was preventing Palestinians from, you know, fighting COVID on, on their own and, and from A, you know, not allowing the health system to be fully functional even before COVID. But as you said, the destruction of um, clinics, of, of pop-up areas where they were trying to provide medical care, of not providing, um, you know, in East Jerusalem, Arabic language uh, information about COVID, about actively arresting, as, as Dr. Barghouti said, activists who were trying to put informal checkpoints in areas to prevent movement. Um, so this has been well documented throughout the summer. Well, look, I'm 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 here with our guests today, Dr. Yara Assi and Dr. Mustafa Barghouti. Um, Yara, if I can come back to you on another point that's been raised by by some people in the media. Uh, who have been defending the Israeli government's uh, position, they say, well, the Palestinian authorities haven't asked us to help. Um, is that the case? And uh, if the Palestinian Authority did ask for vaccination assistance, uh, would the Israelis provide it? You know, I have heard this as well. And in even following this news closely, um, it's hard to get clarity on who asked what and who offered what, but there's a, a point is that, that there does not need to be an ask here, number one. Number two, in April of 2020, we all knew 
that the pandemic was bad enough that no country would emerge without a vaccine. And so back then, there should have been coordination efforts in earnest by Israel, led, led by Israel with the Palestinian Authority to coordinate vaccine distribution when a vaccine was available. So to say in November, you know, eight, six months later, oh, well, they never asked, you know, it, it's just disingenuous. And, and let's also be clear, even if the Palestinian Authority had the funds and had the power to pay for, receive all the vaccines they need, figure out a distribution scheme, which they don't, they would still have to ask Israel for permission to bring the vaccines into the territories to begin with. All humanitarian aid that enters the territories requires Israeli approval. And in some cases, they even have to pay entry taxes to Israeli authorities. Um, so, you know, this question of did they ask, were they offered is, is irrelevant. And again, this is pitting two equal entities against each other when that is not the situation. The, the Yara's point there, Dr. Boguti, about the affordability of vaccines. Um, I mean, I, I've also been reading that the, Palest the Palestinian Authority is looking to try and source vaccines. But of course, the question is, you know, what sort of resources does it have? And what sort of vaccines and, then, and what sort of quantity um, do you think currently it can afford? Okay, let me uh, first respond to the first issue. You asked whether the PA asked Israel. The PA asked Israel through WHO, World Health Organization, and their request was rejected. The most insulting thing happened uh, two days ago when uh, an Israeli company, not their government, but an Israeli company offered uh, 20 vaccines to the Palestinians, 20 versus 14 million. I mean, it's not just a joke, it's insult. You know? And uh, so no, the Palestinian Authority was ready to receive vaccines if Israel would provide them. And they specifically asked for uh, health workers, of course, to be vaccinated and Israel refused them. So your question was about... Affordability. Affordability. <laughs> Okay, I am sitting on the National Committee, which is still dealing with the COVID-19 and the Palestinian territory, with the Minister of Health and others. And uh, we've been pushing really to try to get as many vaccines as possible. One option was the Russian vaccine, which is in my opinion, professionally is a good vaccine. Uh, and uh, there is an, our negotiations now between AstraZeneca and Russia to joint forces together because the Russians have certain advantage in their vaccine in developing the T cells, which are the memory cells for the, against the disease. But the Russians production capacity is still low. So their ability to provide us with the vaccine is very limited uh, because the maximum they can produce is four to 5 million vaccines uh, per month and Russia itself needs 100 million. So we're, we're all hoping to get some vaccines from uh, Russian Sputnik, but uh, I don't think this will happen before the beginning or end of March, and it will not be in big quantity. I'm, we, I'm, agreed, we agreed with the Minister of Health yeah, to make yeah. a request to AstraZeneca, and uh, AstraZeneca said they will provide the vaccine if we pay uh, cash ahead of time, uh, which the Palestinian Authority approved, and we are ordering now two million vaccines, but I don't think we will get it before the end of March. End of March. Uh, yeah. you... so, so this is the situation. Dr. Dr. Barghouti, what are the problems? Which raises the problem. The yeah. problem is yeah. that in two weeks, you will have a whole Israeli population vaccinated and a whole Palestinian population not vaccinated. Yes. Which means what? Concentration of the disease among Palestinians. Well, that's what, Dr. Barghouti, this is what I wanted to ask about, because, you know, we have seen where the disease becomes endemic, uh, where there's a real problem because there's been uh, control measures of failing or a weak uh, eradication has not been the main policy. We've ended up in a situation where the virus has mutated, as viruses do uh, in England uh, and also in South Africa and also in Brazil. Do you not think that, you know, if 
the majority of Israelis understood just for their own self-interest that if the disease becomes endemic in parts of Palestine, that actually it could impact them. They could then put some pressure on their political leaders. I mean, is it also a case of, uh, of trying to appeal to the better nature of some Israelis to put pressure on their government? How much, how much re being realistic do you think could be got from that, that sort of approach? Uh, I'll be frank. Uh, there are good Israelis, like uh, Physicians for Human Rights. Uh, there are good Israelis, like uh, B'Tselem, and uh, what you just said about them describing the situation as apartheid. I'm glad they are doing that after 20 years of us asking them to say so. So uh, there are good people, but they are a very small minority. The problem is that the majority of the Israeli public is adopting extreme right-wing racist policy. Why? Because they benefit from occupation. They benefit from our workers. They benefit from taking our land. They benefit from taking our water. And they have leaders who are extremely skillful in horrible propaganda like Netanyahu. And that's why, unfortunately, unfortunately, the racist approach and racist behavior which is reflected in the national Jewish state law that was passed and that said practically Palestine is only for Jewish people. Uh, this racist behavior is affecting the, the, the ability of these people to think carefully and wisely that eventually they are also hurting themselves. Uh, of course, especially that we all know now, and probably that would be the case, that vaccines will not provide protection forever. So usually going to be like the flu vaccine, you, have, you need to have it every year. So that means if you leave such huge pockets of infection, it will affect them, of course. And, uh, yeah. and eventually it comes back to the Israeli. So that's why I think there's a very serious lack of wisdom. But that means that what you are doing today, what the international community is doing, what international media is doing is very important. Because this Israel will not change without pressure from outside, including pressure from Jewish people who are living abroad and who are wiser than those in Israel. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Bugley. I mean, the it's almost going back to where we were at the beginning of the discussion. The fact that. Um, Yes, that there there are pressure. There is pressure now being put on the Israeli government. We are learning about what is happening, principally through people such as your good selves. Um, but because countries are so preoccupied by their own domestic situations, um, and and the international community doesn't seem to be speaking with much of one voice, and the United Nations seems to be very very quiet about this issue. The question is, given the absolute necessity for urgent action, urgent vaccinations of all Palestinians. What, uh, Yara, do you think, uh, what sort of pressure needs to come from international institutions and from all countries on Israel to comply with international law? And if it isn't, what does the international community need to do about it? Well, Mark, unfortunately, uh, this is the result of 50 years of impunity um, from the international community, which has done almost nothing to stop decades of violations by their own standards, UN resolutions, international humanitarian law, agreements that Israel itself has signed. And this has gone on and on. Um, and the international community has, you know, sometimes you'll see a condemnation from the EU or you know, rarely a US president might say something. Um, you know, we saw the wall being constructed with almost no pushback. We see constant settlement expansion. Um, you know, health issues, this COVID is on everyone's mind, but as uh, Dr. Barghouti was saying, you know, Palestinians with cancer have had these struggles for decades. So for, I mean, I do believe international pressure has a role here, but unfortunately it's, it's coming after decades of, of, of allowing these types of behaviors to continue. And so it's, it's a, 
they've lost credibility uh, to, to do so. I mean, it's great if they do so now. And, and I do think Israel is susceptible to public pressure on these types of issues. Um, you know, the fact that this has been in international news is, is probably surprising. Uh, and I hope that that leads to some outcomes because it's, 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 a, it's a moral, it's a legal, it's a, it's, it's a shame on all fronts. And I, I do think that the more public that becomes, the, the likelier it is that there will be some support. But on the other hand, this, has, this doesn't surprise Palestinians or Palestinian advocates or Palestinian supporters um, because this has been the status quo. And when people say the status quo, you know, usually that means things staying the same. But what has happened in the last 50 years is that benefits have flowed to Israel in the form of land, in the form of, of, of control of the Palestinian population, in the form of how this issue is framed in Western media. And so for now, in this crisis situation, it's become very difficult to push um, without that history of having that moral clarity. Well, look, um, uh, Yara and Dr. Barghouti, we've got some uh, some of our uh, attendees, viewers, are sending in um, questions, making some points. Phil Chetwind, he says, uh, do we not have to raise the question of genocide right now? Uh, Fahed Abouakel, he says, he says, uh, please support the Palestinian Medical Relief Society, uh, www.pmrs.ps, or in the USA, your gift is tax deductible www.friendsofpmrs.org or email us fabuakel at gmail.com um, Wally Yazbak is, is, uh, hasn't got much time for the UN resolutions he says the Israelis don't implement any of the international UN resolutions over the past 72 years um, uh, Phil Chetwind again network of photographers for Palestine is shortly to produce an exhibition pandemic under apartheid check us out on Palestine on Facebook next uh, next month NP Palestine on Facebook next month um, so look we're getting a lot of people um, sending in their questions and making various points uh, and uh, you know hopefully uh, people will after this after our program today take it out spread the word uh, please, uh, the work of uh, both Yara and Mustafa, please get it out there. They write regularly. And it was, we've just been talking about uh, Dr. Barghouti's uh, uh, piece in the New York Times today. Very important uh, piece. Very, very important. Um, so I suppose coming back um, to you one more time on this, Yara, on the international response, uh, the, 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 the world is focused on... Uh, uh, Washington DC next week, January the 20th. Uh, President Trump may not think that he's leaving, but uh, everybody else thinks that he is. Uh, we've seen the most extraordinary situation in the capital of the United States, uh, almost akin to um, the sort of situation that the Americans are very disparaging about when they see them in Bogota or uh, Caracas or anywhere else, but shocking nonetheless. Um, but do you think that the change of administration there uh, um, even if you don't expect sudden and immediate change. Do you think that the mood music changes? Do you think that actually you can begin to have a bit more input and impact on a Biden administration and around this particular issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be hard to point to a US president who has been more favorable to Israel um, since its inception than the, the current administration. Um, Israel got so much, you know, checked off its wish list in this time, and the the problem is, you know, it's hard to to push back on certain things once they've happened. For example, while we may see the U.S. resume funding to Palestinian humanitarian organizations, which were cut under the Trump organization, and I expect Biden will put those funds back. Other changes, like the move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, he has indicated that he will not he will he will leave that as it is you know joe biden the incoming president he has been in u.s politics for 30 years and as a result he has a very typically american view of the israeli situation i do think that uh you know coming out of the the trump administration and and i would point your readers to an interview in the new york times with the outgoing u.s ambassador to israel david friedman um, that was quite clarifying on, on the Trump administration's position to Palestinians. I don't think the Biden administration will be 
quite as favorable. I know Palestinian advocates, they don't expect him to be a, um, a beacon by any means, but there will certainly be more room to organize and more room to advocate um, for Palestinian rights under a, a Biden administration. Um, there's also the Democratic Party that he is the, the, the leader of is certainly more sympathetic to Palestinian aspirations than it has been in previous years. There's several very progressive younger members of the you know, US Congress that are more outspoken. We have a Palestinian Congresswoman, uh, you know, which is in and of itself a huge deal who is pushing for Palestinian issues. Um, so there is room to expand, um, but you know, A, the US has shown that it's not an honest broker in this process. So I think we should be wary of efforts that are entirely US led. And um, B, Biden has so many challenges as he enters office just domestically. Um, now, when we think of the Middle East, most Americans are thinking of Syria, Iran, etc. Um, so I would be surprised to see significant movement on this. I hope I'm proven wrong. Well, Yara, um, we shall see. Um, <clears throat> you're a bit more hopeful, but not that much more hopeful, I suppose, is the best summary. Um, Dr. Barghouti, uh, Stephen Watters has actually sent in um, this quote from the uh, Times of Israel from uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, uh, who's hoping, of course, to win a, another election in March. And he has apparently said in this interview in Times of Israel, that all Israelis over the age of 16 will be vaccinated by the end of the month, promising that Israel will be the first country in the world to emerge from the coronavirus. What message do you have for him on that claim? My message is simple, he's racist. He thinks only of Israelis, but not of the 5.3 million Palestinians that he is occupying. And uh, that is horrible thinking. But the man is after elections, and the man is uh, trying to avoid four criminal charges, including corruption against him. And uh, that's all he thinks about. But let me say something about how to be effective in pressuring Israel. I think the best word that can affect now the situation is to expose the system of apartheid. Believe me, if there is something good coming out of this horrible situation, is that finally, suddenly, the world is seeing Israeli medical practices and as, uh, as what they call medical apartheid. That is tremendous because something here leaked they couldn't control because the facts are so obvious. So in my opinion, if you want to change the behavior of these people, we have to emphasize that Israel is an apartheid. It is practicing apartheid. It is not just occupation, it's occupation, and on top of occupation, you have a system of apartheid, much worse than what prevailed in South Africa. Exposing that will put Israel in exactly in the corner it should be. And that will open the door for punitive acts. At popular level, in the, in the beginning, I know, I mean, because governments are so uh, cowardly towards Israel, but the public pressure will enhance. And what we will see is a similar scenario, I hope, what happened in the case of apartheid system in South Africa. So Dr. the one was apartheid, apartheid, apartheid. That's very interesting because um, uh, as you know, in, in parts of the West, the pushback against uh, critics of uh, Israel has been uh, around uh, anti-Semitism and conflating it uh, with all sorts of other things, including um, those uh, who have said uh, that Israel is following apartheid policies um, in the occupied territories. Uh, and you just mentioned South Africa there, and people with longer memories will know that for a long time, the, uh, the, what they, the South Africans call separate development, uh, these policies were kind of um, almost tolerated or ignored by the rest of the world. And it's only when they became so obvious and so deeply offensive, when it became uh, illegal for uh, blacks and whites to sit on the same park bench, it became that visible as visible as is happening right now, as you were just saying, over COVID-19 and the apartheid policies that the, the whole world can now see. So it does, wherever you're coming from, it does roll that, uh, that whole pushback against those who have been critical over apartheid policies in Israel. It does roll it all back. 
Um, we've got some one or two other comments just coming in. We are uh, we are reaching sadly the beginning of the end of the uh, show tonight, but it's been it's been a very very uh, important discussion, fascinating, illuminating, and also uh, I hope uh, people will go away from this, spread the word, and be active. Um, Mary Whitby says, thank you for letting us hear your comments and what's happening. Um, Kate Scott, uh, she says, maybe American supporters can begin to lobby uh, the new administration over these issues as a priority. Chet Johnston, uh, also uh, New Zealand. Uh, new Zealand can tell Israel that it intends to be out of uh, COVID-19. They've been out of it for months. Um, Yes, uh, right. Well, look, um, lots of interesting comments, uh, lots of uh, questions coming in. I suppose there's a practical question now, which is um, away from the, 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 the hideous nature of the political imbroglio, the, the, the policies of the Israeli government, the, the quite clear uh, separation of uh, medical vaccinations to people, depending on whether they are Israeli or Palestinian to, I suppose, a practical question. Um, and that would be, uh, Yara, what about Palestine's friends throughout the world um, and also in the Middle East? And I'm thinking also about, you know, generous countries that have been generous donors, such as uh, Qatar. Are, are countries and organizations helping? Are they prepared to step in where Israel is failing? Uh, on humanitarian grounds? Um, well, they have been doing that uh, for decades, you know, um, and, and that's why I wanted to point out that article of the Geneva Conventions, which is that despite whatever humanitarian aid enters, this has been used not to end the occupation, but to sustain the occupation. You know, a military occupation, uh, if, if, if in, you know, enacted is meant to be a temporary state. Um, and this has been 50 years plus. And in that time, we have seen donors, we've seen humanitarian agencies stepping in to fill gaps, um, essentially, you know, letting Israel off the hook for these issues, number one. And, you know, number two, with, as COVID has taught us, every country is struggling right now including the rich donor states that you reference. So not only are they struggling with their own collapsing economies, but now every poor country in the world needs assistance. So this isn't just a matter of, you know, friends of, of Palestine. Now it's every low middle income country needs financial support. So this is not a sustainable economic model for any form of development. And, and that's been the case, you know, since Oslo, since 1967, since 1948, uh, humanitarian aid has been a lifeline for Palestinians, but it has also, I think, blocked a lot of uh, external actors from seeing the reality on the ground by preventing a crisis situation and just kind of keeping things humming enough for Israel to claim that actually things are fine and we don't really need a significant political resolution because you, you see things are, are not that bad. And that's, that's not the case. And it's also letting them off the financial and moral hook um, and the legal hook, the legal ob obligation as well. Yeah, I'm, I think a lot of people can see that, that, uh, that all of this kind of ameliorates things for Israel. But at the same time, um, there's a potential danger in that argument that says that uh, essentially really people have got to, the situation has got to become so dire, so disastrous that the whole thing implodes. But of course, we all know from that kind of implosion that those who will suffer the most will be those who have the least. Absolutely. So there's, there is this uh, issue with that. Uh, is this webinar being recorded, Mark? Uh, yes, it is. Um, we've got some other messages. Um, Phil Chetwin says, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Barghouti, for turning out tonight. Um, thank you very much. Uh, despite having had the virus, may you be back in action soonest. Well, from what you've been telling us and from what we can see of you, you are, and you've made a fantastic recovery. Um, so we're very pleased about that. Thank you. Um, so thank you. Um, well, look, I'm just going to, I'm going to wrap things up by coming to you both, I suppose, and saying, you know, when when the world begins to recover from this pandemic, 
Um, and when it's uh, in retreat, uh, and given what we have seen and learned from the situation uh, as regards Palestine and the Palestinian people, do you think it, it will change things? I mean, coming to you, but to Dr. Bargusi, first of all, you know, what you were saying a moment ago about apartheid policies being seen in the most rawest sense now to be there. Will this bring about change, do you think? Sure. Uh, first of all, my duty and our duty today is to ensure that our people get the vaccine. This will be the most important thing we will be working on. It's not an easy task. It's not just about money, it's about access. And uh, that's why uh, I will be, we will be devoting all our energy now to uh, fail the Israeli policy and uh, to find vaccines for our people. This is our duty towards every human being in Palestine, young and old, and especially to those who could die because of this. So that's number one. Now, uh, when we, once we get over this, uh, I am a very optimistic person and I am really optimistic about the future. In my opinion, uh, this exposure to the issue of apartheid has opened uh, limitless ways of fighting occupation. And I be, I'm a person who believes in nonviolence. And I believe that nonviolent Palestinian resistance, uh, well organized, unified, will be the most determining factor. Because, of course, we can cry and we make statements and countries will be sympathetic, but everybody will be busy with their own business. The only thing that will put the Palestinian issue on table is our struggle here on the ground. So if we combine the Palestinian resistance against occupation and against apartheid specifically, with an international solidarity movement that takes the form of boycott, divestment, sanctions against Israeli apartheid, this will be the formula that will change the situation. At the end of the day, nothing will change unless we change the asymmetry in power between us and Israel. And I am a true believer in grassroots organization. I've been doing that for more than 40 years. I believe this is going to work and I'm optimistic about the future. This will end, it will not last forever. But one has to recognize and realize that 90% of the effort is on our shoulders as Palestinians. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> And um, final word to you, Dr. Yara Well, first, I want to thank you for covering this. And I want to echo Dr. Baruti's uh, optimism in that I have to believe that if it was more clear to people what the situation on the ground was in the West Bank and Gaza, the perception would be, you know, more balanced, less um, favorable to strictly Israeli security, which is the justification we hear for everything that we've talked about today. Israeli security, Israeli security. Um, so I, I hope that this issue, this vaccination issue, because it seems to have caught some global traction, if this is an inroads for people to kind of question, you know, what is going on? What is Israel responsible for? What, what is the situation in, in Palestine, in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, in East Jerusalem? And of course, for Palestinian refugees, who many of whom are stateless throughout the Middle East as well. Um, I have to be optimistic that with, you know, some public pushing as well as, you know, the Palestinian grassroots civil society organizations that have been doing phenomenal, invaluable work with almost no resources, um, having to fight um, perceptions of, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, as you said earlier, and, and, and the like, I have to think that, you know, there, the, the days ahead have to be better, I hope. Sure. Thank you very much, Yara. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to you both. Thank you to Dr. Yara Asi. Thank you very much to Dr. Mustafa Barghouti. Uh, back working today, first time recovering from COVID, uh, in the thick of it. Uh, both of you have been a fantastic guests today, uh, and thank you. Uh, that is it from us uh, this week. Um, thanks to you. Thanks to you for watching. Thanks to you for all of your questions. And thanks also to Palestine Deep Dive, Kieran, Omar, Alex, and Mac and others who have made all of this possible. Uh, thank you for watching. And finally, uh, a date for your diaries. 
Uh, please join us on the 26th of January when we're going to be joined by Jeff Halper. Uh, Jeff is an author, lecturer and political activist who's lived in Israel since 1973. He's a co-founder of the People Yes Network and the former director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. Watch this space. We'll be back soon. Thank you to our guests and thank you to all of you. Bye-bye. Thanks.